Hello, listeners. I'm Rachel Wong with Below the Radar, a knowledge mobilization podcast. Below the Radar is created by SFU's Van City Office of Community Engagement and is recorded on the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. On this episode, we are joined by Svetlana Matvienko, Assistant Professor of Critical Media Analysis at SFU's School of Communication. She is the co-editor of the Imaginary App and Lacan and the Post-Human. More recently, alongside Nick Dyer-Witherford, she published Cyberwar and Revolution, Digital Subterfuge in Global Capitalism through University of Minnesota Press. Together, they are the winners of the 2020 Science, Technology, and Art and International Relations, or STAIR, Best Book Award. Our host, Am Johal, sits down with Svetlana to talk about the processes of cyberwar and digital mobilization. Welcome, Svetlana. Thank you very much. I'm so glad to talk to you. Svetlana, I actually had the chance to uh, read the book several months back. I was like on the uh, flight back from Kamloops to like various trips I was doing and and really got engrossed in the text and just the timeliness of it as well. And maybe you can just begin by talking about where the project started from and what drove you to work on this book. Sure. Yeah, the project began several years ago around 2013-14. At that time, Nick Derwisford and I were very interested in events, interested and troubled by the events that were happening in Ukraine. That was the Maidan protests. So we were following what was happening there, this mobilization of people, which is, again, a digital mobilization. And uh, recently, something like this was happening around the world. And Ukraine was a kind of a next country where people mobilize by means of certain social networks, other digital means, etc. And of course, like the context was very troubling and later deaths of people. So it was very heavy, complex situation. And we decided to write, to think about it. So it seemed to us that our area, we are both communication studies specialists, but also those who study political economy of communication. So suddenly it seemed to us that our field allows us to say something about this digital mobilization and how it kind of is situated within the wide political economic world context. And then when we started working on this project, and for this we read a lot of reports, we interviewed a lot of people, at first remotely, but then we actually went to Ukraine and had many conversations with people who were engaged, who were mobilizing other people, people who ran that websites like Facebook pages that became incredibly popular among Ukrainians in general and the protesters. So very soon, it became clear to us that this event, not only similar as a mobilizations, but also is a part of a much more complex phenomenon, much more complex situation and event that has to do with digital militarism on a global scale. And that's how we kind of got the idea of this project. We realized that whatever we are writing, a book or collection or an article that time we didn't know, actually has to transform in the study of this global digital militarism. And cyber war was the name that we decided to give it. 
Yeah, and oftentimes when people are writing about cyber war, they're looking at it from a geopolitical point of view, or there's a kind of literature that's from retired military generals that are talking about this as a new threat. And what I appreciated about reading the book coming from the field of communications, how is your methodology separate from the other types of literature that are around that reference cyber war as a kind of threat? That's very good observation because that was the aim of our project. Indeed, the notion of cyber war belonged to the military and security specialists. They had a very particular understanding of cyber war as a kind of literally military threat of a war of a new dimension and caliber and methods and techniques and technology. But still, they were seeing it as something really related to geopolitics, even if very asymmetrical and different from how war is usually understood. However, we really wanted to give this notion and also this new event, this new kind of war, a political economic reading. And not even just that, we also wanted to highlight the importance, the significance of the user as a part of this very complex event. So basically, we looked at the psychological and even psychoanalytic dimension of user participation in this event. And we thought of users as relays in this very complex war machine or war assemblage. So basically, that's where it has to do a lot with epistemology, with epistemological dimension of cyber war or digital militarism in general, something that we refer to as like informational propaganda or fake news or something like this, right? So it's a tricked user, but also automated user. So in a sense, a user kind of exploited in many ways in this event, used for transmission of certain information when the user response, psychological response, affective response is militarized and weaponized in order to push, kind of like to entice certain way of participation, whether it's protests or sharing some information or hating something or liking something, all of these events. There is a lot of theories and readings today about many aspects of tricking users and using users for different reasons, political, military, and consumption. And what was interesting to us, how in cyber war, all the three layers kind of come together. So war is done by means how like advertising is done and advertising itself becomes more aggressive and militarized like war. So in a sense, all the things really come together and that's what is scary. That's what we can call communicative militarism when con- communication as creation of certain contact as passing and transmission of information participates on all of these three levels consumption, military, and political. Before I get into the material of the book, clearly this has a kind of historical basis to it. You know, I can give examples of, say, uh, state-driven models, U.S. funding of the National Democratic Institute that supported work in Serbia or Mm -hmm. Ukraine. 
that you know predates perhaps like mm-hmm. a cyber war context, but certainly a kind of pushing Western interests onto places around themes of democratization or counter civil society organizations engaging in a type of politics that's challenging state authority or, or state power. So I guess in some ways this doesn't come as a vacuum, but mm-hmm. what do you view as the kind of historical precedence that leads into the material that you cover in the, in the book? Yeah, the history of what we identify as cyber war is certainly, it's a long history, right? So it has some institutional politics. It has particular research and sciences like cybernetics, right? So it has war theory and all sort of institutions and countries and thinkers of war. So it kind of has a very multi-dimensional theory. But of course, cybernetics is one of them. Cybernetics is kind of like the theories that we really wanted to link it to. And that's how we explain this meaning of cyber war, the emphasis on automation. So in a sense, cyber war wasn't probably the best name for it. At some point, we thought so because it's linked to a number of very similar notions like network or something else. But then we decided that cyber identifies the processes of automation. And this automation is incredibly important for us. Automation and self-regulation as those key notions in the cybernetic science and how they function within, like, in the context of this very complex events. So if we were to update Clausewitz, we could say that cyber war is war by other means. Exactly, exactly. That is correct. And of course, I mean, we did mention William Gibson there as well. And that's what... It's good to get a little Vancouver shout out. That's right. That's right. Yeah. But of course, it's interesting. William Gibson often comes in conversation when people speak about cyber war. And that's why, again, that's why to many, this term cyber war maybe sounds a little too gimmicky or sci-fi. But that's how also we can see quite interesting communication between fantasy discourses and military discourses feeding one another. And indeed, so the notion of cyber world or cyberspace, to be precise, was introduced by William Gibson in in his work, Neuromancer, and even earlier writings in the early 80s. However, it was interesting that several years ago, the U.S. Defense Department added a new domain for war in the military doctrine. So before it was air, land, and sea. And so since several years ago, cyber war is officially named as a war domain. So in this sense, it's no longer any sci-fi or a fantasy. This is actually a space where the war can be led. And it also means that particular strategies, particular developments are happening within military institutions to think how exactly the war should be led in this space, in this cyberspace. Now, with the timeliness of the book, you cover in quite a bit of detail the Russian hack of the Democratic National Committee in the U.S. during the 2016 election. And you mentioned these kinds of different types of hacks and what their intentions are and talking about affirmation, negation, distraction. 
wondering if you can sort of place into context, like how can we read and try to understand that particular hack? And of course, there's many other hacking that goes on that doesn't raise to the level of visibility that perhaps to some degree all states are involved in. But that one in particular obviously continues to this day in terms of affecting American politics and otherwise in geopolitics to some degree. So, Yes, that case, as well as a number of other cases, are quite interesting in terms of thinking this new type of war, cyber war, because it really lends itself to a very simplistic reading which is usually done under the influence of the whole Cold War discourse. So here, it seems like the things are arranged exactly in the same way. There are two big powers, and they're sort of fighting each other just the same way as it was happening in the Cold War. So that's what another kind of thing that we wanted to address in this book, that Cold War, the Cold War is gone. So in in a sense, I mean, yes, I actually think that it still participates, even if on some fantasy level or level of epistemologies or understandings or stereotypes that also mobilized and weaponized in this whole discourse about current tensions and fights and etc. However, I think it's also very important to step back from something that looks so familiar and think about a really complex event that does not only include the two powers, but in fact includes so many different powers, which are not just state powers. And so that's one of the key features of cyber wars that we really wanted to emphasize and develop in this book. We can call it like hybrid or nonlinear or asymmetric. And by this, we actually mean that so many different powers involved. It could be the state, it could be a corporation, it could be some insurgency group, cyber insurgency group, and it could be like single lone hackers. But also it can be something completely random, some kind of random leak, random malfunction, random something else. So that's what this kind of framing, this kind of thinking we need to have when we encounter something that, again, looks so familiar, Cold War, etc. It can also distribute and redistribute where the hack is coming from to an extent that really scrambles what the truth might look like. Exactly, right? So that's why I'm quite disturbed by this whole idea of Russian hackers and how it is used in media in all sorts of discourses. And I'm not saying that there are no Russian hackers. There are. There are those all famous troll factories in St. Petersburg. They exist. But so many other things were kind of identified or interpreted in terms of all this Russian hackers scenario that I think someone is really using that, right? So someone is using our Cold War imaginaries to cover some other very complex power relations between many powers. And there's also sort of the phenomenon of the truth teller or the whistleblower. So you have the Mm -hmm. Snowdens, the Julian Assange's, that a particular kind of role in the imaginary for some people. They're truth tellers for other people, Mm -hmm. conspiracy theorists for other people, traitors. And it kind of goes on and on in a kind of way. And also the extent to which they can be used in some way. And and certainly with uh, Assange and the... Information is sent 
or leaked by someone, let's even call it a truth teller, right? But then it's used immediately by a multiple agents and it's used in so many different ways. And that's what we also think, that's what we also identify as cyber war. The complexity of interpretation, the complexity of action that is mobilized by even a certain leak, certain quote-unquote truth, certain information. And it can go in extremely controversial ways, extremely surprising ways. Yeah, in fact, in many ways, these methodologies look not that different than political infighting or those types of things where anonymous people come forward to the media to say this and that during an internecine leadership debate or this type of thing. And so it is quite interesting. One of the terms that you use in the book are sock puppet social media accounts. What do you mean by that? Well, yeah. So, I mean, social media, of course, Facebook, Twitter, etc., were used in so many ways here. And when we say in this book that people are used as relays, right? So it means that certain discourses that they can produce are basically mobilized in a certain way, in a certain affective way, in a certain epistemological way, and etc. Right? So people are used to say something. People are forced to say something. People are forced to send certain information and so on. So in some sense, cyber war is a, like populism in a way is a technique rather than an ideology and it can be employed in various Yes, it's uh, a very smart social engineering, right? So which is another very much cybernetic kind of idea and term, right? So how people can be forced to do something. Now, there's even contexts where groups that are on the kind of far margins and periphery, the use of social media to amplify what they're doing. So say ISIL or Daesh using mm-hmm. social media in particular ways and wondering how you read that particular phenomenon in terms of the sophistication of the uses of that by terrorist organizations. Yes, we looked at several examples and what is really disturbing about with these users of social media and social engineering by means of social media or amplification of certain effect or discourse through social media is that that how certain inventions that in many cases, like certain techniques of communication, of sending certain messages uh, that are in many cases invented by activists, protesters, etc., are being stolen from them by certain powers, right? So in a sense, there is always some kind of set of new techniques invented by a particular protest that would kind of happen on Maidan and that would happen in Egypt and etc. And then immediately we see how very soon the state power uses the same techniques in order to target some people somehow, in order to, again, mobilize them for different purposes, etc. And in this sense, it's a kind of like scary and very disappointing how it's all been appropriated because these techniques are the particular, let's say, technical and social knowledge that we develop as activists, as protesters, in order to continue our fight, right, for certain important causes. So, and then suddenly we see how these techniques are being stolen and what terrorist organizations are doing, state powers are doing, is precisely that. 
In one part of the book, and I think you're reading through Deleuze and Guattari here, uh, you and Nick state that the war machine dominates but contains possibilities for nomadic reappropriations of its technologies. What do you what do you mean by that? Yeah, it's basically what continues what I just mentioned, right? So this circle of reappropriation of techniques or creating new techniques or stealing them back isn't a complex ongoing relation, a participation in this fight against state or for the sake of certain causes, etc. So, of course, it would have been a super sad picture <laughs> if you would say that there is no way out completely, right? So the last chapter of this book, which I must say was the hardest to write, and the title of the chapter is What is to be done? And we posed some questions or thought about possibilities to either appropriate certain techniques back or think about new techniques that could not be appropriated by the state or think about the very complex porous assemblages of cyber war and a possibility to find some niches, some spaces in it where we suddenly can escape is a control or the mechanisms of the social engineering, certain power, and carve certain spaces where we can be, even if temporarily, but to think and to disconnect, disconnect from the complex war assemblage. I want to talk a little bit about the Arab Spring as well, because I was in Egypt back in, in 2004, and you didn't have to go very far to get into conversations with people who talked about wanting or having the desire to overthrow Mubarak. And it was a part of, you know, everyday conversation. You wouldn't need to go far. There was a economic and social and political frustration with the regime. And, you know, end of 2010, Arab Spring starts 2011. And by 2012, Western academics writing about the Twitter revolutions and things like that. And to me, it feels that it glosses over the labor and the political mobilization, the work that really happened over almost a decade or something like that. But it seems like things sometimes get skated over. Certainly there's an amplification effect that social media has to pre-existing political and social orders and mobilization that are happening. But how do you read how cyber war fits into these types of entanglements? Here we can think of cyber, again, as automation. And also think about one of the meanings, perhaps the original meaning of a revolution, as rotation, as circulation. And that's where, kind of almost sadly, we can see how many of these protests or mobilizations were misnamed as revolutions, but in fact, unless you think about this original name of it as a certain circulation, right, rotation, kind of um, rebooting of power of the same caliber, etc. Rebooting to a new strongman. Exactly, right? So to another misrecognized strongman or misrecognized new leader or misrecognized as potentially good new leader, etc. So, and that's where also some of the questions that we had in this book, because the book is called Cyber War and Revolution. So about this complex relation of rebooting certain regimes uh, and uh, while also mistakenly seeing them as big change. But here we have the kind of revolution that is not about change, but it's about continuation. 
So maybe we need to also not forget that revolution also means this and to think how to update what should be the theory and practice of revolution today that it doesn't fall into this automated regime in service of, you know, power, capital and so on. And in terms of how you read cyber war now, how do you think about the possible futures of of cyber war? This couple of years after the book, so I continue working on certain topics related to the book. And I've been working with the notion of communicative capitalism, which is the notion introduced several years, uh, quite a while ago by Jody Dean, also a political thinker. Today, it's interesting and important, I think, to reintroduce this notion as communicative militarism in order to raise awareness about how the communication understood in a very wide way is being exploited for militarization, for any kind of forms of digital militarization. This is kind of like my take from all this work, and I'm looking in many different cases, new cases that in many ways remind something that we already wrote in the book, but of course people have new ideas about how to exploit, how to militarize, how to mobilize, how to commodify certain audiences, right? So they work with the phenomenon of echo chambers and thinking also about possibilities to mobilize and commodify echo chambers as particular audience and so on. So continue working on this and continue to exploring and and thinking about the new dimensions of cyber war. Mm -hmm. And how has the reception of the book uh, been? What kinds of uh, questions have come your way since it's been released? Different. We had different responses, very good responses. We got an award. We got several very nice responses in in journals and press, etc., to speak about like some kind of controversial questions that we usually receive, because I think that's the most interesting. So there are some people who are offended by the fact that we are calling it a war. Because obviously, in many cases, what we discuss in this book has to do with real war scenarios. It has to do with like protests, deaths, drone war, and things like that. However, at the same time, it actually has to, cyber war has another dimension, which is this very peaceful dimension. Sometimes I like to say that cyber war goes through our bedrooms because it's also about zombification of our machines. It's stealing computer power and stuff like that. So some people sometimes get offended that that dimension is also identified as war. They say there is no bloodshed, it's maybe a little incorrect and etc. But I think that's precisely the point that we want to make in this book as, as we think of a new type of war, a distributed war, right? So it needs, it requires that other hidden areas that are so far away from the battlefield but can be resource of data or computer power or something like this, right? So that's why we actually have to think of this complexity, which now includes peace and war, that peace is also today 
militarized and exploited for the purpose of some remote kinetic war somewhere on the other side of the globe. Svetlana, thank you so much for joining us on Below the Radar. Thank you for having me. Once again, the book is Cyber War and Revolution, Digital Subterfuge in Global Capitalism from University of Minnesota Press. And I had a chance to read it. Highly encourage you to go and check it out. Thank you again to Svetlana Matvienko for joining us on this week's episode of Below the Radar. The Stare Best Book Award is a section of the International Studies Association that seeks to recognize the innovations in research about the intersections between science, technology, art, and international relations. To learn more about the award and the book, we've linked to some resources in the episode description below. On the next episode, we are joined with filmmaker John Walker, a director of many films, including the documentary film Assholes, A Theory. Found this book, Assholes of Theory. There it was. So I came into my office and said, "This is my next project." The book is a it's kind of a, a warning about the rising tide, uh, in my words, the rising tide of assholery. What was, what was important to me about the book was because it names the behavior and describes it as a as a moral type. It it allows you to say this is unacceptable behavior. So it's empowering in that sense. Um, but I think that if, if you're not aware that this is bad behavior, not aware of what an asshole is doing and be, being able to define it, you could take it on yourself, thinking, what's wrong with me? I'm not doing a good job because, you know, you're being yelled at, you're being shouted at, you know, you're, you're not being respected, you're not being treated as a human being. And you think, what have I done to deserve, deserve this kind of behavior? And it's kind of accepting it, not realizing. It's a sense of entitlement that seems to be a very male, particularly vis-a-vis women. I mean, we have a a culture, a male culture, of being, feeling superior to women. As always, thank you to the team that puts this podcast together, including myself, Rachel Wong, Paige Smith, Fiorella Pinios, and Kathy Fang. Davis Steele is the composer of our theme music, and thank you for listening. Tune in next time for a brand new episode of Below the Radar. You can find Below the Radar wherever you listen to your podcasts, including Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Play, and Apple Podcasts.